All right, we are back. Uh, we're going to try and avoid talking much about debates, the Democratic debates going on. There's no Republican debates going on because no one's challenging Donald Trump, which always struck me as a very strange thing about the political system. Given the nature of our parties, once they got a guy in power, they don't challenge him. But I do understand from Mr. McMillan that uh, Marianne Williamson, the uh, I'm not sure what label to put on her, visionary, is evidently being funded by the Republicans, which kind of harkens me back to uh, Al Sharpton's campaign a couple decades ago that was funded by Roger Stone, Republican Party hitman, because he figured that getting Al Sharpton up before the public would just do a world of good for the Republican Party, and I'm sure it did. Will the presentation of this starry-eyed Marianne Williamson uh, as a credible candidate hurt the, hurt, the Demo hurt the Democrats? I would think so. But then, who knows? The Republicans ran a fake billionaire reality TV star, and, and he won. By the way, when we go off on various topics in this program, I'm, I'm sure many of you listening are, are going to find a disagreement with what you're hearing, which is fine, and, and prompts me to quote, uh, for our quote of the week today, attorney and activist Dudley Field Malone, having once said, I have never in my life learned anything from any man who agreed with me. I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but there's truth in it. And I think at this juncture, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for ageism, with the news that a British town issued a nuisance notice forbidding an 81-year-old woman from wearing her bikini in her yard because it caused, quote, alarm and distress, unquote, to children at a nursery school next door. Senior citizen Kay Crane said of the ban, I felt bullied. Well, you do have to ponder how much alarm and distress that would cause among children or whether they should, you know be prompted to not be alarmed and, and distressed. At any rate, it was a bad week last week for remaining seated with the news that a Canadian woman evidently fell asleep on a flight from Quebec to Toronto and woke up hours later to find herself alone locked into a pitch black empty plane. <laughs> Spokesman for Air Canada said it would investigate how this was possible. Well, we certainly hope so. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for the late Walt Disney, who was probably spinning in his grave, over the news that former Disney star Bella Thorne defended her decision last week to release a batch of nude selfies after a money-seeking hacker stole the private photos from her phone. Said Thorne, I can sleep better tonight knowing I took my power back. Some social media users cheered the preemptive action, but The View host Whoopi Goldberg chasing the actress, saying, if you're famous, I don't care how old you are, you don't take nude pictures of yourself. Thorne called Goldberg's comments sick and honestly disgusting, adding, so what, a girl can't send her boyfriend that she misses photos of her that are sexy? Is that what you want? I don't. Someday my prince will come 
and from the technology run amok section of the show, which is often large portions of the show, we have this item. The police department in Huntington Park, California, sworn its newest officer last week, which is a bullet-shaped bot called HP Robocop, fitted with 360-degree cameras that can feed live video to police headquarters, will trundle about city parks and buildings searching for lawbreakers. Robocop has been trained to interact with members of the public and can recite simple phrases such as, excuse me, and good day to you. The bot, says Chief Cosmo Lozano, will fit right in with the rest of the force, who we presume are walking around saying, excuse me, and good day to you. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was describing um, another trip I took whale watching, in this case in the Dominican Republic, which runs tours out to look at the whales down there, which like to hang out off the island. And uh, he pointed out to me that, well, you know, uh, things are going on down there that are worrying people. And it's true. Apparently, uh, Dominican authorities are fearing that their country's tourism industry could collapse following the deaths of at least 10 Americans at resorts over the past year. Some inexplicably dying in hotel beds, others after drinking from a minibar. The latest casualty, a 56-year-old New Yorker, died at the Boca Chica Resort in Santo Domingo. He had a history of heart disease. The State Department says the number of deaths out of 2 million visitors each year is not unusual, but the FBI is investigating several of the cases. If there's been negligence of any kind, says Dominican Tourism Minister Francisco Javier Garcia, we will act. Oh, good. Some hotels are taking their own measures to reassure customers. The Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Punta Cana, where two Americans have died, has removed all liquor from guest room minibars. He truly did find himself in Punta Cana some years back after, after the whale watching. Uh, I do have to say that these all-inclusive resorts are probably very good for some people, but not my cup of tea. I don't know how it is they managed to mess up both Mexican and Japanese food, but they did. All right, we haven't been bagging on tech too much in the show, so let's, let's fix that. USA Today recently had an article noting that your Alexa, or even your smartphone, could soon recognize signs that you're having a heart attack. Of course, there are alternatives. Instead of interacting with your Alexa and your smartphone, you could try interacting with other humans who may be able to also recognize whether you're having a heart attack. Just a suggestion. There's a lot of smooth-talking people out there, you know, working out of Silicon Valley, explaining the, how it is we need to all have supposed smart homes where all of our appliances are talking to one another. Never mind the fact that these things are poorly protected and that hackers are having a field day working their way into our accounts th through these devices. But at any rate, a video from General Electric is out showing customers how to reset their smart light bulbs. This went viral last week, according to Bloomberg.com. Social media lambasted how a simple product may be too sophisticated for its own good. When it comes to these smart light bulbs, a voice first tells you to turn off the light for five seconds, then turn it on for eight seconds, then off for two seconds, on for another eight seconds, then repeat that procedure four more times. Then, if the bulb flashes three times... It worked. If not, you probably did something wrong in the sequence. Or you have a slightly different bulb that requires an entirely different procedure. 
quipped one YouTube commentator, imagine turning it on for only seven seconds the last time. Noted Bloomberg, the dizzying instructions underscored that some of the home technology supposed to make our lives easier isn't quite there yet. You know, I know when I'm bagging on, uh, on tech like this, there's a lot of people out there, uh, marketers, marketers from Silicon Valley and other places, that uh, are cheerfully explaining to us why these technologies are just great in every way. And, you know, this kind of reminds me of what Bill Hicks once had to say about marketers. By the way, if anyone here is in advertising or marketing, kill yourself. <laughs> just a little thought. I'm just trying to plant seeds. Maybe, maybe one day they'll take root. I don't know. You try. You do what you can. Kill yourselves. Seriously, though, if you are, do. Uh, no, really. There's no rationalization for what you do, and you are Satan's little helpers. Okay? Kill yourself. Seriously. You're the ruiner of all things good. Seriously. No, I'm, this is not a joke. It's going to be a joke coming. There's no joke coming. You are Satan's spawn. Filling the world with bile and garbage. Kill yourself. It's the only way to save your soul. Kill yourself. For the record, Radio Parallax does not go as far as Mr. Hicks. If you are a marketer, we do not suggest that you kill yourself. We do suggest that you find honest work somewhere. And speaking of tech, because we're not quite done yet, how about this one? According to the Wall Street Journal... Google Maps is being overrun with millions of false business addresses and fake names. When you type a search inquiry into Google, as many as six businesses that have bought ads will appear at the top of the screen, alongside a map to pinpoint brick-and-mortar businesses in the neighborhood. But, quote, a majority of the listings for contractors, electricians, towing and car repair services, movers and lawyers, among other business categories, aren't located, end quote, where they say they are. A search for plumbers in a swath of New York City found 13 false addresses out of the top 20 Google search results, and only two could be found at the locations shown on the map. Of course, I do want to note that the power of these technologies is overwhelming. Imagine my surprise when I typed in the name of this uh, <laughs> colorful relative and found that, well, he's right there on Google. I could read up on him, find who he was married to, who his son is, and all kinds of interesting things. To further test the ability of Google this morning, I decided to, uh, to pull a quote out of Moby Dick. You know, talking about whaling, I pulled out Moby Dick and did a little review. There was one chapter in it that always made me laugh about uh, the men boarding a French whaler and, and giving the Frenchman a bit of a hard time. The men from the American boat were trying to uh, convince the French captain who had a couple of whales lashed to his boat, one which was rotting, called a blasted whale, and one which was shriveled. The Americans were interested in getting these whales away from the Frenchman so they could carve some ambergris out of it. As part of the scam they were pulling, one of the men from the boat was to speak in English, and translator, a man from the Guernsey Island, was to speak to the French captain to achieve their ends, which was to get him to abandon the whales. If only to make it look good, the English speaker was just to mouth off in English, and <laughs> at which point the Frenchman would translate falsely. As they were choreographing this ruse, the Frenchman asked the English speaker what he should say first. 
To which Stubb replied, Why, you might as well begin by telling him that he looks sort of babyish to me, though I don't pretend to be a judge. He says, Monsieur, said the Guernsey man in French, turning to the captain, that only yesterday his ship encountered a, ca a vessel whose captain and chief mate, with six sailors, had all died of a fever caught from a blasted whale they'd brought alongside. Upon this the captain started and eagerly desired to know more, wrote Herman Melville. What now, said the Guernsey man to Stubb. Why, since he takes it so easy, tell him that now I have eyed him carefully, I'm quite certain he's no more fit to command a whale ship than a St. Jago monkey. In fact, tell him from me he's a baboon. The translator then, of course, tells him something else. I always thought it was pretty funny, that line about a St. Jago's monkey. Decided to see whether Google could pull up a reference to it, and by God, they did. Turns out that St. Jago is a corruption of Santiago, an island in the Cape Verde Islands that whaling ships used to go to. And they did at one point introduce green monkeys from Africa to the island as pets, and they became well known. So it's pretty hard to deny that if you want to learn something, especially something that's obscure, boy, Google is an amazing tool. Unfortunately, they also seem to be keeping track of every search we've ever made for the purpose of marketing us to other people, which just can't be good. Marketers, you know. But speaking of monkeys, last year we cited an article in New Scientist magazine about how it turns out that uh, chimps and even monkeys are able to use stone tools. We humans thought we had a monopoly on that, and that's really what makes us human, the fact that we are tool users. But... Um, it's more complicated than that. We're not the only ones. So, and we all know that, you know, when you're out in a whaling boat like we were last weekend, everybody loves to go by the um, sea otters and observe how they will go to the bottom of the sea, pull up a rock, put it on their chest, and then as they catch crustaceans and snails and the like, bust them open on the rock. Well, further studies of capuchin monkeys have shown that um, they're really quite adept at, uh, at the use of stone tools. They will, in fact, use one tool as a hammer and another tool as an anvil and crack nuts between them. And quite curiously, by carbon dating sites, they have found where uh, residues exist and, and, and stones have obviously been used by the monkeys. They could date these sites to determine that uh, the monkeys' use of stone tools had evolved over time. They were, they were able to verify that uh, this habit of cracking open stones goes back at least 600 years. But um, further studies now have indicated that uh, this, this tool use goes back something between 3,000 and 2,400 years ago. And apparently the monkey's choice of food changed over time, possibly because of local conditions, as did their use of different types of tools. Pretty interesting. This does harken us back 50 years ago. You know, speaking of landing on the moon 50 years ago, the film 2001 A Space Odyssey came out that same year, and it did open with that famous sequence of a, uh, of a primitive human using a, in this case, bone tool to um, achieve its ends. Pointing out that uh, tools maketh man. But also apparently, uh, you know, crows, sea otters, and monkeys and apes. Anyway, if you're interested in this work by uh, primate archaeologists, and, and we hope you are, you may be interested to know that um, the studies of these different sites where tools have been used show some similarities. 
They have compiled a list of stone tool use universals for primates to discover that the key similarities are that they all transport their tools to special activity areas. All group members use tools. Juveniles spend years honing their techniques, and they always use stone anvils as pounding surfaces. Anyway, pretty cool stuff. We mentioned uh, a while back here about uh, dolphins and how apparently if you eat squid, you got one type of tooth, and if you eat fish, you have another. Paleontologists have now taken a look back at extinct forms of crocodilians and come to some rather remarkable conclusions. All crocodiles on Earth today have conical teeth, which, which they uh, will capture fish or animals that stray too close to the side of the stream or, or pond. But evidently, this tooth type was not, uh, not always the case. Uh, looking back at uh, crocodilians from the ages of the dinosaurs, Jurassic and Cretaceous periods, Crocodile clan members have turned up showing extraordinary dental diversity. Many of their teeth are proved so bizarre that some paleontologists have theorized that far from being carnivorous, these ancient species might have been eating plants. Evidently, the current issue of Current Biology has an article by Keegan Maelstrom and Randall Ermis at the University of Utah, uh, confirming this possibility anyway, that herbivory evolved in the crocodile clan, on several occasions. Anyway, we can't vouch for this work done on comparative dentition of crocodilians, <laughs> but these people in Utah, these paleontologists, think that they found three different uh, times when herbivorous crocodiles may have evolved. Pretty cool. And all this talk of evolution prompts me to pull out an article from our archives. This is from New Scientist back in 2014, talking about snakes. I think we made passing reference to this on the show some years back, but pretty cool article by Bob Holmes noted that snakes have evolved in amazing ways, adding that losing their legs was the least of them. The piece notes that it's on the inside that snakes have made some extraordinary changes in their bodies. They have pared down their internal organs, mostly eliminating one lung and all but one lobe of the liver. They've evolved a novel heat-detecting sense organ, and the most sophisticated venom system of any animal. And they can turn their metabolism up and down more dramatically than any other vertebrate. The piece notes a few years back that uh, they had first sequenced the DNA of, of a snake genome, and they were using it to piece together some of their remarkable uh, evolutionary journeys. The article also notes that the story of how snakes evolves begins just over 100 million years ago with a lizard or lizard-like reptile. Biologists still debate about exactly which group the ancestor of snakes belonged to. Apparently a few think snakes are descended from the marine reptiles known as mosasaurs, but they are in the minority. The great bulk of the evidence points to a terrestrial origin for snakes, and even a burrowing or secretive origin. The mainstream view of this, and we hope you're interested in this topic, is that proto-snakes belong to a group whose living representatives include the monitor lizards and gila monsters. So why did some members of this group lose their legs and elongate their bodies? Most likely to chase insects through subterranean burrows or tangles of grass. Indeed, the most primitive snakes found today, a group called the blind snakes because of their vestigial eyes, still live underground feeding on ants and termites supporting the notion that the earliest snakes might have been burrowers. Acquiring a snake-like body involved surprisingly few mutations. The grow-limbs-here genes are still active in snake embryos, according to researchers in the Netherlands. 
but the cells in this area just ignore the signal, so no legs form. Snakes get their long bodies by budding off vertebra at an unusually fast rate as embryos, so that they end up with many more than other animals, over 500 vertebra in some species. Peace notes that in fact it appears to be really easy for lizards to evolve a snake-like body, as has happened on numerous occasions. There are dozens of lizard lineages that have lost their limbs, said Michael Lee, evolutionary biologist in Australia. Most, however, are small burrowers, seldom seen, and little studied. The ancestors of snakes, by contrast, slithered back above ground and started to hunt larger prey, eventually giving rise to fearsome predators such as rattlesnakes and cobras. There are about 3,400 species of snakes today found everywhere except in the coldest polar regions. Some have colonized tropical seas and never touched dry land. Others, like boas and pythons, have grown very large, though even the biggest snakes living today are small compared with Titanoboa, an extinct snake that grew to more than 10 meters in length and weighed over a ton. And no, we're not going to talk about the fact that idiots lose pythons down in the Florida Everglades and which have wiped out the wildlife down there, but I tell you, of all the ways I may go when I have to go, I think, you know, being consumed by a large python in Florida is probably, might be close to my least favorite. Of course, I have to add, getting bitten by a venomous snake is, is not, not really high on the list either. The same piece of New Scientist notes that if you get bitten by a venomous snake, a dose of anti-venom containing antibodies that neutralize the toxins could save your life. But which anti-venom will work? Many snake bite victims don't know which snake bit them, so drug companies produce cocktails of anti-venoms that work against several species. That is expensive, however, increases the chance of an allergic reaction. Researchers in the UK decided there is a better way. They're using genetics to identify regions of venom proteins that are the same in different snake species. They then decide antibodies to bind to these regions, meaning each antibody should be effective against the bite of several snake species. The ultimate result should be cheaper and safer anti-venoms. We certainly hope they make some progress in this area. I did recall a terrible story from a friend of mine that took place about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, someone he knew had been bitten by a rattlesnake. The ER that he went to elected to give him anti-venom, which I believe was, uh, in this case, a horse antibody. They, they basically inject the venom in the horses, extract the antibodies, and purify that. Uh, this man had a reaction to the horse antibody and died. Compounding this tragedy is the fact that, as I recall, this took place in either in California or Arizona. And uh, yes, it's true, rattlesnakes are poisonous and they can cause some tissue damage if they give you a good bite. But uh, it's, it's very, very rare that a rattlesnake bite is fatal and it's almost always in a smaller person, a child, that, 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 that such is the case. And oh, by the way, in, in, in these summer months, uh, that whole idea of, of uh, cutting an X and sucking the poison out if you're bitten by a snake, that's old news. We don't do that anymore. It is true that snake venom is generally a protein, and if you, you know, took it down your gut, your digestive enzymes would neutralize it. I'll never forget watching a demonstration when I was a boy of somebody that milked venom from a poisonous snake and then took a sip of it to show, see, <laughs> you can get away with this. Remember when I reported upon seeing this to my grandmother, who used to assist my uh, grandfather in his dental office, she pointed out, well, let's hope he didn't have a sore in his mouth. 
And evidently didn't because uh, he did not die before the program ended. Anyway, at some future point, we probably should talk about uh, poisons, snake, venom, and others on this program because, well, poisons could be an interesting topic. Although interesting isn't perhaps quite the right word when I noticed a, uh, a news item a couple days ago pointing out that um, scientists in the Netherlands have been keeping track of insect populations using standardized traps, and they have a, a, amassed this huge amount of data that, that's good, solid data, extensive data, showing that there does appear to be an insect apocalypse going on. In some areas on planet Earth, there's been a, a, a two-thirds reduction in the number of insects in a given area. This is attributed to poisons, pesticides. And as a consequence of this, they're noticing bird apocalypses. And of course, you know, birds eat a lot of insects. And if the insects are poisoned, well, there go your birds. And uh, this is just another thing to worry about in relation to global warming. And uh, boy, that's quite the bummer. And I don't want to end the show on that topic. Let's instead talk about carbonated water. Searching for some refreshing cold water, a week or two ago, I opened the refrigerator of uh, my gal pal to note that uh, she had a bottle of carbonated water in there, noting that she bought it for a party because some people like it. Although she noted that she wouldn't drink it, and frankly, I wouldn't either. In the Q&A section of New Scientist a couple years ago, this, this topic came up. A writer asked, why does my wife like wine with bubbles in it more than flat wine? Do the bubbles add to the taste, or does her preference come from marketing and cultural contexts? And why do I not like fizzy wine? The answer was, this is mo most likely a learned behavior. Laboratory animals won't drink carbonated liquid, and people adjust to the feel of it or don't in the same way as they do to the bitterness of coffee or to spicy foods. Surprisingly, the bite you get from the fizz doesn't come from the bubbles popping. When scientists got people to drink carbonated water in a hyperbaric chamber where bubbles couldn't form, but the carbon dioxide was still present in the liquid, subjects reported the same sensation. And apparently, that sensation comes from a sour receptor called TRPA1, which is activated by carbonic acid, dissolved CO2. A protein in your mouth called carbonic anhydrase converts the carbon dioxide to this acid, and the TRPA1 receptor detects it. At high acid levels, your body goes into a get-it-out mode, and you will start coughing, choking, and tearing up. But at low levels, the fizzy burn is pleasant, for many people anyway. The acid also makes sweet things taste less sweet. Just consider how much sugar is hidden in one glass of cola. And the carbon dioxide changes the taste, too. So, the respondent concluded, if you don't like fizzy wine, the most likely reason is you probably prefer sweetness. Or you don't find the acid bite pleasant. Anyway, I guess the, the way we should probably close this particular show would be to, uh, given its Hawaiian callback potential, uh, see if you can't dig up Tiny Bubbles by Don Ho, Mr. McMillan. Tiny bubbles. That about does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who, for the record, dislikes carbonated beverages. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll hear you live, quote-unquote, at least one more time before taking a summer hiatus, and uh, see you then.
golden moon And hills to the silver sea And mostly here's a toast to you and me Tiny bubbles 